Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Sample Hour. Today, we are joined by... Sorry guys, I'm in a good mood, just being silly. Anyway, so this episode is a co-released episode amongst uh, Mixed Mental Arts. So my good friend Hunter Motz came in town, and I drove up to Detroit, and we recorded a podcast, and... Had a little meetup. That's kind of my thing. We're doing meetups. So speaking of meetups, so the event's getting pretty tight. But if you guys listen to the School Sucks podcast and the Sample Hour, we're having to get together this Monday at 7.30 p.m. at Penn's Mechanical Company in downtown Columbus. The event's getting pretty big. So if you want to go, you have to send me an email, which is thesamplehour at gmail.com. Or uh, send me a message on Facebook. And you have to listen to both shows because, um, yeah, it's it's mainly for Brett. But I'm just having fun and enjoying life, guys. So if you listen, you really want to go. So Ohio GSD crew, if you guys want to come, you let me know and I'll see you there. If you guys aren't a member of the Ohio GSD crew, just uh, shoot me a message. If you're in Columbus, you want to meet, hang out, let's, let's fucking do it. Yeah. Anyways. Before we get started this episode, let's cover the affiliates quickly. So if you go to naturesimagefarm.com and use code word sample, you will save absolutely nothing on meat. Meat, it's a magical word for meat. It's a magical word for plants, but there is comfrey there. So if you guys want to take advantage of code word sample and get 10% off and free shipping, um, you can and you can get some comfrey shipped to your home from Nature's Image Farm. Um, now there are meat birds for sale, so they are still accepting turkey deposits at Nature's Image Farm. I got my deposit in and we're going to be, uh, working up those turkeys in a little bit under a month. So that should be a good time. Um, and then there's plenty of chicken. So they're all, uh, they're, I don't want to say pastured chicken because a lot of those chickens spend time in the woods. They're beyond organic craft chicken. So they are Cornish cross, but Something that uh, Greg and Sean Brown have both pointed out to me is it's not necessarily the, the bird, it's the method. And I think that that goes a long way with a lot of different things. It's not, I mean, your source material does matter, but the, um, you know, you want to go with, uh, you know, method. Let those chickens be chickens and you'll be amazed about how they are produced. Anyways, so that's Nature's Image Farm. Newfarmsupply.com. If you go to newfarmsupply.com, use code word sample, you save 10% and get free shipping anywhere in the country, I believe. Um, so that's that. And then last but not least with the affiliates, go to profitableurbanfarming.com or just click on the link in the show notes and you guys can actually save a thousand. You can save a hundred dollars off the course or you can sign up for the payment plan. Um, there's a lot of courses out coming out, guys. I guess Connor Crickmore has a course too. I don't know. I'm skeptical of all these courses. I like Curtis Stone's course. I read Jean Martin Fortier's book. I'm sure Connor Crickmore has great information. But this is the course that I support. So I would go ahead and support this one. So with that being said, let's move on to if you just want to support the show. You're like, you know what? I don't care about any of those other companies. What I care about is Drew Sample. And support him so he can bring us more podcasts more consistently. Well, guys, if you sign up for Patreon, there's this episode's been on Patreon for a while. Um, and I'm going to load up more. So I'm going to be loading up. So what I'm basically going to do 
is do like a soft edit of shows without um, introductions or bumper music or any of that fun stuff. And a lot of times, too, there's less editing. So the Nathan Frazier episode, there I left in Nathan cussing up a storm because his equipment wasn't working because it's funny. And uh, my buddy Brett Vinat started, he does that with the AV club. And I think it's really funny. Like, it's just something that, you know, people want to hear real conversations. And um, there's an episode coming out soon where I had all kinds of technical issues. So I just kind of cuss up a storm. And then I never met this guy. So the whole time the guy just makes fun of me. And we ended up having a pretty good conversation. But um, it's pretty funny. So, um, anyways, guys, with that being said, you guys can go ahead and become a patron. So just $1 a month, guys. That's all it costs. $1 a month. Patreon's kind enough to take like 10 cents of it. But guess what? I'm happy with that 90 cents a month. Maybe we can figure out a way to where I just put it all in a Google Drive and you guys just set up a payment plan on PayPal and you can just pay me a dollar a month. Which brings me to paypal.me slash sample hour or there's a link in the show notes. And if you guys just want to do a one-time payment, um, you can do that as well. I recommend Patreon because you get that content consistently. I understand though if you don't want to create another account. And then last but not least, if you guys are into cryptocurrency, I do have some guests coming on. I mean, Fred and I talked about it quite a bit. I have another episode of Crazy Fred coming out where we talk about his Bitcoin mining. And then my good buddy Daryl Becker is going to come on. We're going to talk about Dash and Litecoin and Ethereum and all that silly shit. Jack Spierko's had episodes about that. I don't listen to Jack. I used to, but I, I just don't. It's nothing against Jack. I think Jack's a good dude. Um... A lot of my friends, I think we all came together as a result of Jack. But I don't listen to podcasts really more. I started listening to Jim Goad, which I guess might make me, I don't know, it might make me pretty radical now, guys. So anyways, so with that being said, guys, let's start this show. I hope you enjoy this. It's me, Hunter Motts, and some other listeners of Hunter's show. I think we have a good conversation. So this took place live in Detroit at the United Way Center, and um yeah, I mean, Derek Shinska, his girlfriend, Danielle, um, this dude, Chris from uh, London, Ontario. It was it was a good time, man. We had a we had a good conversation. Me, Hunter and I had a good talk. I made fun of Hunter quite a bit. And there's about three more shows after this one with me and Hunter. And after this episode, the next episode is actually going to be a Patreon exclusive. So you get the first half for free. And then the second half is on Patreon. So I'd hate to be that guy, guys. But um I don't have a job anymore, guys, so I'm doing it full-time. And when you don't have a job and you want to enjoy everything you're doing, you got to try to monetize everything, which is a message I've been making for a long time. I don't think you guys mind. I think you guys that listen to the show, you get it. You support me. Um, Can't say enough good things about the listeners that I met. There's plenty more that I want to meet. Big shout-out to Eric Gillen, um, my man out of Baltimore. Uh, He's invited me over like a thousand times, and I've been meaning to get down there. Um, Eric, shout out to you, bud. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoy this show, and I look forward to bringing you more episodes soon.
Yeah, I guess it's joint. I hit yeah, record. Yeah, so we should we should intro both podcasts. Okay. Because this is what Chris Ryan and I did. That is? Yeah. Okay. We did. We made that up. That's a new convention in the podcasting culture. What is? To so, introduce both podcasts. Oh, okay. Well. So, welcome to another episode of Mixed Mental Arts, ladies and gentlemen. It's a sample of Mixed Mental Arts. On yeah, the sample there hour. you go, on the sample hour. So That's you're my in, last name. So it's, you guys know. <laughs> it's quite clever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're literally in hearing two podcasts at the same time, ladies and gents. So this is real multitasking. You're getting double the knowledge bombs at one time. Yeah. And we're here in Detroit in what's the name of this building, Derek? What is the name of the building? First National Building at the United Way for Southeast Michigan Headquarters. And I have to say it would be hard to pick a more epic spot to uh, podcast in. We have this amazing view of downtown Detroit, which has undergone this great revitalization. They have an entirely worthless $150 million tramway that nobody <laughs> uses. Um, but, you know, just to add some real flair to the city, uh, there's all sorts of exciting things going on. And uh, we've got a very interesting group of people here from yeah. all over this part of the world. So uh, maybe everybody should introduce themselves. I mean, obviously, everybody knows drew sample of the sample hour i don't think they do on your audience i've been on i've had one episode come on well it's yeah one episode when we did the first columbus it was the only mixed mental arts episode film that was recorded in my living room <laughs> and that was me and adam henson and uh james miller of the coolest humans podcast that's right that's right and so we did that and then the farming season started and then i because I, I came in the group and then like I left and then there's like an extra 700 people. And I was like, uh, I don't know any of these people. And then I was accused of being spammed by Billy Bob Thornton. And uh, I'm just teasing. That guy's a good dude. <laughs> James Drew. Bakersfield. I think that's his name, right? But uh, yeah, now I'm back. Farming season is coming to a close, so it's less busy. But thankfully, Derek brought like invited you out here to Detroit so we could hang out. And, uh, well, that's not, he didn't do that so we could hang out, but it's given us the opportunity to hang out and record this show here. So I'm Drew Sample out of Columbus, Ohio, and host of the Sample Hour and managing member of Capital City Gardens. Derek, do you want to introduce yourself since you're the founder of this Detroit feast? <laughs> uh, Derek Shinska from Detroit, Michigan, uh, proud U of M graduate. Sorry, Drew, for uh, right. bringing that up again because it'll probably be okay. again. It's a way better school than OSU. That's true. That's true. OSU, like, they just charge a lot more money and they're a lot bigger. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so, yeah, excited to have you out here. Um, Hunter's going to be speaking if you hear this in the next. Ten minutes, probably, because it's uh, <laughs> he's speaking on the nineteenth uh, at the Cobo Hall. But there's still tickets available. I don't know when we're posting this, but uh, going to be an awesome event, and we're hoping to use Detroit as kind of a launch off to uh, kind of have this, you know, idea sex for uh, you know getting our cultures integrated and uh, get things moving forward here. So that's a good question. When this is going to be posted, I can if if Hunter wants to, I can get this edited if you want to post it before the event. I think that'd be great. Yeah, okay. let people know. And then Brian is also, I texted Brian last night, so Brian will be doing Insta and Twitter. So okay. literally the legions, it's probably going to be a lot of very attractive women will be showing up because <laughs> that's most of who is interested in Brian Callen. Um, but, you know, probably some dudes who are attracted to his extremely masculine physique and fighting skills. Absolutely. Um, so, okay, so that's great. So, okay, so Derek and Drew, and then we also have a Canadian in the mix. That's right. Uh, Chris Niles out of London, Ontario, Canada. 
podcast fan and just happy to be here uh, um, talk culture with you guys and see what's going on. Yep. And then two hours down. And then for a change, this podcast is not a total sausage fest. We have a very lovely lady with us. Danielle Cardella um, from Long Island, New York. And um, by chance, met Derek at an airport. And three years later, now I'm living in Michigan. There you, you go. At an airport. She was originally from San Diego. So yeah. I always tell everybody who says I can't sell, I had convinced somebody to move from San Diego to Michigan. So. <laughs> not just Michigan, but Detroit. Hey, even better. That's a sell- That was a good selling point. Wow. Like That's maybe I could see Ann Arbor, but Detroit is like hard for a lot of people to swap. But there's a lot of myths about Detroit too. This is true. This is true. I mean, I'll drive you guys around a little bit later on, and you will see all the uh, awesome new developments, awesome history. I mean, Detroit's yeah. just a kind of uh, really cool, interesting spot. In general, though, Derek is Detroit's greatest salesman. He's like a one-man <laughs> chamber of commerce slash tourist bureau. He's going to single-handedly revitalize the city. Doesn't pay as much as you think, though. <laughs> Well, so it's better than my dad for, for a long time has been the one-man tourist board for Libya, which is a much, much harder sell <laughs> than Detroit. So, But so, Derek, so yeah, like, give us the pitch. Like, what's been going on here in Detroit? Uh, a lot of a lot. So, I mean, I we did poke fun at the uh, queue line here. It's a $150 million project. But what's really cool about it is a public-private partnership. So we mentioned briefly before about, you know, the kind of true libertarians want the free market to work. And we've had some great examples of community and business and government coming together, working on some really cool projects to help set ourselves up to move, move ourselves forward. Um, people are moving back downtown at a record rate right now. And when people think of Detroit, I mean, they often think of Detroit. But Detroit's really a tri-county area, I and mean, even kind of tri and a half when you include uh, Ann Arbor which is not in that tri-county area. And there's, I forget the exact number, but there's a couple $3 million people in this vicinity. Uh, and when you get the combination of schools that we have, I mean, U of M, we joked, I mean, but it's a great institution. We have Michigan State, which is a great institution. We have, you know, we're not like Boston. Wayne, Wayne State's pretty nice too, though. Wayne, State, like, Wayne State's really underrated. Yeah. And there's the other school that we can't remember the name of that yeah. buddy worked at. Yeah, well, there's U of D as well, uh, but when it comes to just kind of the, you know, uh, human capital of young minds that we have here, it's great. Uh, so the issue we had four or five years ago was, I mean, after 08 was the brain drain. People were mm-hmm. leaving in Michigan after graduating. So what we had to do is, to, uh, you know, put a lot of people like the Illiches and Dan Gilbert had put a lot of money into downtown to create some opportunities. And so we had that big, you know, those big companies to help out. We also have a lot of startups. There's a lot of uh, technological hubs. We're trying to kind of become the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Uh, and there's just a lot of cool partnerships going on. And, I mean, when it comes to, uh, you, know, you know, awesome experiences at some pretty cheap rates as compared to Chicago, L.A., and New York, you're not going to find a better spot to do it. And you're not going to find better support from your, you know, resources from the government and kind of other, you know, business development, the Chamber of Commerce, and, Likewise. Well, and there's a lot of experimentation. Like I've been, uh, so the Airbnb that I'm staying at, um, I was talking to, you know, John, who you've met. uh, So Drew is big buddies with John now. They're very tight. Um, But uh, he was saying like, you know, even because, you know, the guy who owns that Airbnb owns a bunch of properties in the area and he was able to buy a house for a dollar. And I guess the deal was is that you could buy the house for a dollar, but then what the city really wanted was that you would then invest some capital in, you know, restoring it, really updating it. And um, so there are, it seems like there's, you know, because any time somebody hits bottom, 
there becomes a real clarity that things need to change. And so, you know, Detroit really hit bottom. And that since there, there's been this clarity that they can't go on doing things the way they've always done them. And they have to be, you know, experimental, willing to try new things out, see what works. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a pretty interesting dichotomy, too, because, I mean, if you're trying to find space anywhere in this in this area, it's almost kind of, you know, that opportunity for a low price is gone. Uh, yeah. This is really well developed. It's really, uh, you know, it's here. But where the opportunity lies is in our neighborhoods. I mentioned to everybody before the podcast that we have a, you know, a footprint that fits, you know, Boston, San Francisco, and we couldn't remember the name of the other, other major city in its footprint. And the neighborhoods are still not back. So we still have a little bit of tension when it comes to, all right, well, downtown's great, but how do we fix the neighborhoods? Um, and that's important. And a part of that is fixing our school system because our public school system, not that different than others around the country, needs work. Um, so there's still opportunity to help advance that. And, you know, we happen to be at United Way that uh, is doing its part to try and help that process as well. Um, but it's just kind of cool to your point that we have this still this opportunity in the neighborhoods. Uh, but we have this great example of how it's already worked. Uh, but we need to bring everybody forward together instead of, you know, kind of like, all right, let's you know, drive through the highway, pass the neighborhoods and get into downtown and forget about everybody else because that's just not a sustainable long term plan for, uh, you know, the culture of you know the region. So, well, and I, I you know, my exposure to Detroit is pretty limited so far. Um, I mean, I was joking with Drew last night that my knowledge of Detroit before coming here was RoboCop. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, I was very worried about nuke dealers. I thought there were going to be a lot of nuke dealers. Kane apparently is a big problem in this city. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen RoboCop 2, it's a great movie. Um, but, you know, there's, there does seem to be this real spirit of real pragmatism. Yeah. And, like, you know, I've been... Uh, there was this, these two UK artists, Fantic and Young, and they use this great expression that, you know, because they're, they're artists and then they're also husband and wife team. And so they said, we realized long ago that we could either gang up on each other or gang up on the problem. And there is a real spirit here of ganging up on the problem. Like, who the hell cares? You know, it's like Deng Xiaoping's famous line, like, it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. So it doesn't matter if it's public, doesn't matter if it's private, doesn't matter if it's charity, doesn't matter what it is. Like, let's just catch the mice. doesn't really matter how it happens. Yeah, no, I would agree completely. And one thing I am proud of for our region, we have our tensions, we have our difficulties, and we have a very famous 1967 riot. But the tensions around the country, I mean, are obvious every time you open a newspaper. But you really look at what's happening right now in our city. We have our issues, but we're still together. We don't, we're not having these big issues. We're having productive conversations. We're getting the right people to the table and trying to you know, move forward as a group. And again, I, I'm not dismissing, you know, we haven't achieved success yet. There's still groups that need help. Uh, the city still, you know, the region still has some issues. But it's just very, I think, rewarding to see what, we're doing here and you don't see us in national news you don't besides positives i think it's really cool that um correct me if i'm wrong but a lot of rural areas around there turned into farmlands is that correct so that chris Chris, I know that they don't have microphones in Canada, you know, but in Um, general, the the rule is ice cream cone. Follow follow your head. So just eat it like an ice cream cone. I'll just follow your head because you'll turn your head. Oh, okay. And you're like, you turn to Derek to talk. But then you don't bring the mic. Well, the problem is yeah. these chairs are so nice. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're fine. You're fine, buddy. Okay. 
I just um, had to humiliate you. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Cool. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> out. I heard the Canadian there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be but at like least super you didn't apologetic say, and super you, nice. You so. didn't say sorry. <laughs> no. You didn't say sorry oh, yet. So, uh, sorry. But anyways, as you were saying, they're turning areas into farmland. Yeah. From what I see... Um, yes, there, there is some of that. Um, they're trying to figure that out. Our biggest issue right now is there's... Forget what the number is. AJ from the United Way is here with his son as well, uh, Brady. They are uh, we have the first toddler on the podcast, but uh, I might go to him for uh, some help here and there. But there's what fifty thousand originally uh, abandoned homes going back a couple of years. So the mayor's done a really good job of trying to like let's demolish these, let's get these things up to develop those opportunities. Yeah. So we've attacked it, and I think we're down twenty thousand homes since Mayor Duggan has stepped in, but there's still 30,000 there. So things have popped up. They're kind of like, all right, well, what are we going to do with these areas? Some of them are farms. Some of them are, all right, let's get parks. rid of these. We can turn them but, into parks. Yeah, let's it, it turn them into parks or whatever. It's pretty interesting because you're staying in Jefferson... Uh, Jefferson Chalmers. ...area, and on the way here, you would see these areas of just grass where you could tell there was probably a building there at some point, and they just bulldoze it so it wasn't a blight on the neighborhood anymore. Yeah, it's, I always I have what I call my Detroit tour. So um, as we heard, Danielle is not from here. So we have people that come into town from her family, and mm-hmm. I want to show them the city. So I show them all the great parts downtown. I show them Belle Isle, which is this awesome island that you know it's a state park. Uh, I show them our different uh, restaurant districts, entertainment districts, but then I also take them to the old houses, the old neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean these are where everybody lived, you know, up until the '60s. Is Zug Island still a thing? Uh, I mean the. The trash island? No, it's not. Okay. Not so much anymore. But uh, if you go to the Boston Edison District, which is approximately five miles north of here, yeah, there's houses that are, I mean, anywhere else, they'd be multi-million dollar houses. You know, it's starting to come back a little bit uh, in terms of value because more people are moving into those areas. But every time I take Danielle and her family, like, wow, these houses are really cool. I never envisioned Detroit in my head like this. And when yeah. I show them the area, they're like, well, well, millionaires used to live here. It's just the same thing with yep. Youngstown. I mean, I think it's a it's a thing. It's a personality trait of the cities of the Rust Belt because all these cities left. Only a few, like Pittsburgh, was one of the few that bounced back and they like really hunkered down on arts and microbreweries. And now Google's using their and Uber using the self driving cars there because I don't know if you've ever been to Pittsburgh, but it's such an old city. Yeah, and it's like Chicago if you pulled it straight up, and and I think. You know, the thing with Detroit is it's, it's just like it's like a way bigger Youngstown, except it actually is recovering. And it's there's there's so many there's going to be like you got to remember millionaires did used to live here. So they had nice stuff here. So it's not like it went away. It's not like they left and then all of a sudden their house stopped being nice. Like you could still move there and restore it. And it's a great opportunity for somebody if they wanted to have like a nice place and and. And just kind of change. Like, if you work in the internet, you could move here, get a nice house for cheap. And for me, I mean, you know, as Hunter, like, cost of living is everything to me. Like, I mean, like, it's, I don't, like, I always, we were talking last night. I'm like, dude, I would never want to live in LA because it's so expensive. Like, we went, we went to Dearborn last night and we had this feast at uh, Al, Al Hameen. Al Amir. Yeah, Al Amir. And it, like, 
we ate all this food and the, the bill was like, if we would have eaten all that food in LA, it would have been like $120. Well, and also, uh, you actually couldn't have eaten that meal in LA because it's better Lebanese food than yeah. you would find in LA. Because the, the, that's the thing that I always find fascinating sort of about ethnic food is you need a large enough population for the thing to get good. Like, it's the same thing with Indian food. Indian food in America sucks. And it sucks because there just aren't enough Indians here that, like... They're competing, the standards are being raised, like you just don't have a large enough hive mind, essentially, and you know, you don't get the economies of scale of importing fresh spices and the turnover and all of that. So you actually could it's not it's not even just that like the meal is cheaper, it's that it's better. Yeah, it was it was good quality. I mean it was and I think Dearborn is like this fascinating part of Detroit because it is like in the greater metropolitan area. Like it's but it's like that's a community that invested back in itself. And and that's when everybody else was leaving, they were they were dumping more money into their money into their own part. Which is why when you go to Dearborn, it's it's like a little it's like a little Lebanon right in the middle of the city. Yeah, it's uh I mean to that point, another great, you know, check in the positive side for the the Metro Detroit region is the diversity of culture. Yeah. So, I mean, Dearborn is one of the highest, most condensed population when it comes to the Muslim population and these different uh you know uh different, you know, religions for like, yeah. and then, um, it really creates an opportunity for, you know, diversity of culture, diversity of minds to help with that hive mind, maybe move, you know, in a, in a more productive direction to have that first, you know, family dinner that we always talk about. Yeah. So there's also, you know, a huge sense of community. And that's the one thing that, you know, I feel like what's an unfortunate for Detroit is the stigma around it. Yeah. Um, I worked in Manhattan and I also worked in downtown San Diego, both two amazing, great cities. But, um, you know, when I was making the move to Detroit, especially from San Diego, everyone's like, what are you doing? Like, you know, that's not the usual route people go. Um, but it was something when I got here that I just realized it's such an amazing city. There's so many things going on. Um, I'm a marketing consultant. I work really closely with DT Energy, uh, managing their energy efficiency programs. They're always giving back into the community. Um, so it's definitely something that I feel is um, more near and dear to people's heart here. I'm not saying that it's not for the other cities, but it's just something that there is that sense of community. San Diego is super transient, so is uh, New York. It's a melting pot. But um, it's definitely everyone's really proud to be here. They love Detroit. They want other people to know how amazing Detroit is. You know, everyone has Michigan. That's the one thing my sister said. She said everyone walks around with you know, the state, like, you know, Michigan on their sweatshirt. No one does that in New York. You're a tourist if you have I Love New York on your shirt. So it's definitely something that I'm really happy to be a, proud, a part of right now. Well, and I, I mean, let's, let's just run with the idea that they don't have that in other cities, right? Like, there is a sense of purpose here. And, you know, that's something that humans really crave and really need. And, like, the Rust Belt has been hit so hard that there is a desire to, like, do something great to turn things around. And a lot of this, what it mostly reminds me of sort of is startup culture. You know, there's a sense that there's a problem and there's an opportunity. And there's also the handlebar uh, <laughs> bike tour, which is amazing. Guys, if you don't know about handlebar bar, bike tours, I mean, we're just going to give them a free ad right now because you can be biking and drinking at the same time. I don't know why. It's and doing amazing. both do poorly. It. Have you guys done it? <laughs> I've done it for a bachelorette party a couple weeks ago. It was a lot of fun. There you go. There's <laughs> an endorsement. Exercise and drinking just it's, never seems like a good idea. It seems like... You can exercise and drink in Canada. You just... 
exercise. You win like you drink that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so actually, I mean, funnily enough, talking about Canada as an exercise in contrast, right? So we've talked about the spirit in Detroit, the sense of purpose, you know, everything that's going on here. And then tell us a little bit about what's going on in London, Ontario. Ah, chaos. I'm not going to lie. Everybody there thinks everything's funky-dory, but it's really strange. I mean, Canada in general, I, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the free speech with Jordan Peterson, God Saad, and all those guys. I mean, they just had one of their events canceled at Ryerson a couple of weeks ago, an event that was supposed to be talking about free speech on campus. It actually got it canceled. So, um, Was yeah, it because of Faith Goldie, that one? With that? With Faith Goldie, that was part of the yeah, reason. Yeah. And I think that's why it got canceled is because they saw Faith's name on there and then, you know, put a Nazi symbol above that and then, you know, it just carries some more spot on and then it just got canceled. So, um, but yeah, Canada's a weird place. Lots of weird people in my city, but it's very multicultural. So, you know, you get that. We got great Indian food. If you go to Toronto, you can find some of the best. Italian food, some of the best Indian food, some of the best Chinese food in the world. Um, just because Toronto's Chinese, great, they have yeah, good shawarma yeah. there too. Yeah, they have they have really good food. Actually, I was just in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and everybody was like, "Oh, Chicago is the place to be for food," and nothing in comparison to Toronto. Um, and I think it's just yeah, Canada's always been a, "Hey, come on in, have a seat. We'll <laughs> we'll give you a job, and we'll do everything. We'll take care of you," and uh, which is fine, but. Um, they have a big PC culture, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. I, when we used to do shows in Canada, like the comedy shows in Toronto, um, there'd be jokes. I remember Dean Del Rey had a joke about being from San Francisco and how everybody assumes that you're gay. And he's mm -hmm. like, it's not like you go there and they just dump in buckets of dicks on you. Yeah, yeah. And, like, nobody thought that was funny because he was talking about gays. And, like, nobody would laugh because, well, I can't laugh about that because it's about gays. Yeah. We had another comic, Nor Norlex Belma, and he was, he's this big black dude from Pittsburgh. And he, like, a lot of his jokes are, like, about being black, and they didn't know how to react because they're like, I don't, I don't know if I can laugh at that because I'm not black. And it, it's just, like, a different – it's just a different vibe. Like, they, they're like, I don't know if that's nice, so I don't know if I can, I can do that. It. Yeah, I don't know if I can laugh at that. That yeah. was the feeling I got. Wasn't a PC it? in my line of work. I'm I'm a technician for Rogers, which is kind of like AT and T and Verizon here. So I see a lot of people on a daily basis. And used to, years ago, I used to talk to people all the time. Uh, you know, how's it going? What's your whatever? Not anymore. Just because I could say something that could offend somebody, and yeah. So, but isn't that? I mean, I think that's the interesting thing is, is that so often with cultures, what you find is they've sort of dialed down on something, mm -hmm. and then they become undiscerning about it. So, like, Canadians have taken this politeness thing to the end of the line. And the problem is, is that that means, okay, great, they're open, they're inviting, they let people into their country. Yeah. But at the same time, they become so obsessed with politeness and niceness that they're like, if niceness, therefore, we should never say anything that's offensive. As opposed to being discerning about, like, oh, sometimes it's actually helpful to challenge the status quo. Sometimes it's helpful to say uncomfortable things just as sort of healthy human conversation. Yeah. And we slowly switched. I mean, at the beginning of the year, Trudeau, our, pr our prime minister, was... Open border, everybody can come in, no problem, doesn't matter. And then a couple of weeks ago, I saw him tweet recently, okay, let's put a harder stance on immigration because I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but we've had an influx of Haitians come through the Quebec side and the northern Ontario side just um, ever since, obviously, Trump and the, that all went down. So, And now he, 
Trudeau is kind of like, okay, let's uh, step back and put a, you know, a harder stance on immigration. So it's accepting, but it's not accepting. It's so confusing in Canada. And well, I, and I think most people are just confused. Yeah, like that's, that's the, it. I mean, the, the reality is humanity is confused. We've lost the plot and we no longer know what we're doing. And it's okay to have lost the plot. The reasonable thing to then say is like, we don't really know what we're doing anymore. Like, why don't we just sort of clear things up yeah. and figure out what's going on? Like I was talking with Drew about yeah. this on the way in and I was like, the honest truth is that like people don't really know how to revitalize cities. Like there's not a there's not a clear playbook for that. It's not like somebody is sitting around and it's like step 1 do this, step 2 do this. Well, it's just like he was talking about the neighborhoods and you were saying like what do you do? I'm like, man, you just convince people to take care of their yards. Like if you can convince people to pick up trash on their street and take care of their yards, it goes a long way. Yeah. And it, it's like it's like little things that will have like I mean, dude, my street, like I, I don't live, I mean, yeah, there's, there is like a little project down at the end of my street and there's like usually street walkers. Um, it's like, it's, it's so weird. Like when you, when you go there, Hunter, when you see it today on one end, it's like the further North when you go to, so I'm in between these streets called Weber and Hudson. Weber is where they're cleaning it up. They redid the whole street and the further North you go, the nicer it gets. And it's like, you're getting closer and closer, like a nice part. And then the further south and east you go, the rougher it gets. Like there's more check cashing, family dollars, stuff like that. And nothing against family dollar, but family dollar and church's chicken is usually a sign that it's like lower income and it's going to be a rougher neighborhood. I'm not like, it, those are just stores. Like you, how often do you see, like, would you ever see a church's chicken in Howell, Michigan? Uh, in Howell, you probably would not. But Howell, I don't know if you did this on purpose, is actually kind of. That's uh, a white flight. I mean, City. the KKK is was Michigan chapter, for lack of a better term, was out, just outside of Howell. And they oh. had that reputation for that. And it's changed drastically. But, I mean, yeah. history is history. And that was there once upon a time. So. But I just know, like, white flight, for anybody that's not familiar with Detroit, white flight. Like, Howell was, like, Howell and all those other areas. Like, what, was Pontiac another white flight area? Where were all the... the uh, it's really to Macomb. So, the, yeah. I mentioned a tri-county area earlier. Wayne uh, is sit where, where Detroit sits. Then you have Oakland and Macomb. So Oakland, Macomb is where a lot of the, a lot of the folks uh, went to during right after the '67 riots. So the stable the population was relatively stable up until that point. It was there was some downturn, but it has now, and it was again my Detroit historian's not here, but it was at 1.5 or 2 million once upon a time, or now about 700 thousand, and it's grown for uh, past couple of years for the first time ever. But getting to your, back to a comment I want to make a little bit earlier. So, I mean, you know, how do you fix the neighborhoods? I, mean, I think it's a lot what Jordan Peterson says about, all right, clean your room, right? That's what I said. Yeah. That's exactly what I said. So, yeah. But it's not as easy as that. There no. was some systemic racism and redlining that had, I mean, people could not reinvest in their homes. I mean, that's just fact. Uh, I mean, there's no way around that. And that created some of these deteriorating neighborhoods that created these conditions. And, I mean, if we don't address those issues, if you don't give the people the opportunity to clean clean their room, quote unquote, that's where we got to, I think, you know, from a government community standpoint, we got to help those folks to, to do that, to help them give the ability to clean their room. And so let's talk about, yeah, systemic racism, because I think that's that's always what I find fascinating about, you know, terms like systemic racism, white privilege, they get thrown around. And then most people never sort of really like 
Understand what it really is. Understand what it really is, and to use everybody's you know favorite word, unpack what that means. <laughs> let's so unpack this. Term. Let's unpack this. So let's, let's take un- it out of the parking lot. Yeah, let's take it out of the parking lot. Let's unpack. Did what you, is? Did you get a chance to watch that speech the mayor gave? I did. I did. So, so which he was, does an amazing job of doing that. And I mean, for anybody out there, I mean, I I knew it existed, but I think it did a great job unpacking, as we mm-hmm. say, kind of what happened. Um, I mean, it was just amazing what ability to get loans and all these different things was. I was just ignorant to or oblivious, whatever the word might yeah. be. And it really helped me. You know, I'm like, okay, well, I already, always knew that. It helped define it for me. And I'm doing a terrible job, you know, giving you a 30-second version of it. But it's about a half-hour speech that's worth watching. Well, well and, and the thing I would say is, is that, yeah, so I think it is obliviousness, right? Like, we all inevitably live in echo chambers. Like, the idea that anybody, any human who tries to claim, I don't live in an echo chamber, is literally admitting that they are the most oblivious human. Because it's like, you know, 60 million scientific papers, 130 million books, God knows how many terabytes of data on the internet, plus the fact that, you know, you live in some city most of the time and only have limited exposure. So, and, you know, people often like the term, you know, white privilege or, you know, whatever. It's just the fact that, you know, you're a swim fish and you're swimming in the ocean and you're only getting exposed to certain things. Like, I mean, you know, I had this conversation with a buddy of mine who is black. I have many black friends. And, uh, you know, he if was... If you have to say you have a black <laughs> friend, you're a racist dog. Oh, shit. I'm a racist dog. <laughs> um, so, you know, but he was just talking about, like, you know, so much of it is just like you're walking down the street and it's just the looks that you get being black versus the looks you get being white, right? Or the looks you get being a woman or the looks you get being dressed a certain way. Or like, you know, if you're walking around like we were in Dearborn last night and there are all these guys and, you know, there's like, there's a spectrum of sort of visible Muslimness, right? Where like some guys, you know. Some guys dress like us. Some guys wear the full get up. Yep. And if you're wearing the full getup, right, if you're wearing, it's being Jewish, right, you're wearing a yarmulke versus you're wearing that amazing beaver hat they have, <laughs> which I love the beaver hat. Um, but so there, there are just experiences that you get just by the nature of how you dress, how you look, all of that, that you don't get. And then, you know, on top of that, I mean, to the systemic racism point of view, um, you know, I think actually the other great resource, I mean, we'll link to in the show notes, we'll link to this speech by the mayor of Detroit, but also uh, Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction, because a lot of it is that there are just assumptions that are based into any, baked into any mathematical model. And so what ends up happening is, is that, you know, math profiles Math profiles you, and it's going to put you in a particular bucket, even if you don't necessarily fit well in that bucket, because they've made certain socioeconomic assumptions, and therefore you're not being treated as an individual, and therefore you're not getting good loan opportunities, and therefore you're essentially stuck um, in this sort of like cast where you can't get out. Yeah. I, so this is so Columbus is a very different city than Detroit because we don't. Our, our economy was never, I mean, at one point when the Bushes owned Buckeye Steel in, in Columbus, it was, there was a lot of industry, but it was never really an industrial city. But you see systemic racism um, in the guise of gentrification. And basically what happens is neighborhoods start to get hip, that property value goes up, and then people start moving into the new neighborhoods where the property value is low that is close and right next door. And that's the neighborhood I live in. And it's nice to see it cleaning up like it really is. 
Um, but it, you know, it, they're, they are trying to push poor people in a certain direction in the city of Columbus. Nobody talks about it, but I mean, they just are like, I mean, now, uh, where the, the professional soccer team plays right off 71, they're like, okay, well, we're going to start pushing these people this way. Um, and, and a lot of it too, are people that are, you know, taking initiative and, and are trying to make a buck. I mean, it's, it is free market working in a sense. Like I've, I've watched houses that looked like dumps. Mine was one of them. My old buddy, my buddy bought the house for eight grand, put 10 grand into it. I paid him 600 a month for two years in rent. And then I bought the house from him for 45,000. So it's like, uh, you know, I'm just putting that business out there to say, you know, there's a way you can do it. I mean, through, through a loose network of people, you can, you can, you can slowly take a neighborhood back just, just from the idea of profit and knowing that things are, but I mean, it doesn't, that doesn't work all the time. Like, I mean, I, I would have to spend a significant longer time in Detroit to really get that idea. But even the same thing with like the dollar house, you know, like let's do this, let's invest it, invest in this house, build it up. We're okay. If you want to rent it out or do an Airbnb. And I think, I mean, it's a weird thing. I feel like, so in Columbus, a huge driving factor of revitalizing areas of the city seems to be hipsters and and gay couples yeah gays like gays i've actually hipsters i've always like huge I've always, economic boosters there are a lot of hipsters in detroit there's no doubt well it's a hipster it's like a hipster beacon now it's like i want to move to detroit and it's like a so everybody wants to move here that is hipster and say i live in detroit and do this stuff but there's some cool shit here like uh great coffee fun. great <laughs> coffee but i mean like even around Roasted plant another free plug but That's i right. think i think like when they built comerica park like that cleaned up like that part of detroit quite a bit I mean, that area wasn't terrible. So, I mean, there's kind of uh, like the developed area. There's it's called and Woodward is the main stretch downtown. And then it goes up Michigan Ave. You kind of have these sections where it's it's fine. The riverfront is great. The neighborhoods aren't terrible. But, I mean, I think the key, I mean, again, I I somewhat struggle with it. You know, okay, we're improving the neighborhood, but you're excluding people. So one cool thing that the mayor mentioned in his speech is like, all right, we're giving money. We got to make sure that X amount of residents are residents from the city. So if we don't give, you know, the those folks an opportunity, I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, if they don't have the ability or the knowledge or the opportunity to, you know, earn a living to get to that standpoint, I mean, I think we fail as society. And that's going to take government. It's going to take community. It's going to take folks like the United Way to help us push this forward to give everybody an equal opportunity. It's not yeah. going to happen overnight. Uh but, but that's something too, we got to tackle. You want to have stuff for entrepreneurs, too. So, like, you know, yeah, we'll help you. We're not going to crush you if you want to start a small business. Like, and I think because it's, you know, small hit places or that, that coffee shop we, we went to. I mean, like, those, like having a creative idea. Like, yeah, we want to help you be a part of this community. Like, you need small local businesses and a community to give it a personality, right? Yeah. Especially in different areas. Do they? So is there still parts of the city where there's not street lights? No, I mean, so that's one of the things, I mean, the mayor did. I'm not, there's an election coming up. I'm uh, officially endorsing him, but uh, he just set to tackle the easy things first. And it wasn't easy. It's an outdated system. Just like the rest of the country, our infrastructures needed some serious, serious help. Um, but he turned on the lights. He had the trash picked up. He made sure the grass was cut. Um, just some very easy aesthetic things that, you know, help the community feel better about itself. And then he became a true, I mean, he's, no surprise, he's a Democrat when you come to, you know, big cities, but he's works with everybody. I mean, yeah. he really, really does. This is not party lines. Um, 
our city council has been historically uh, difficult and always in the news. It's been pretty good communication, not to say there had, hasn't been issues, but it's just been the platform he's set to allow for open and honest communication for this idea of sex to happen from a you know civic level. I think it's, I mean, a good example of how things should go. It's not perfect. can always use improvement, but I think it's a, a great start, as you can see by looking out the window right here. So. Well, and that's what real leadership is, right? It's the, uh, the real leadership is the ability to take a team of rivals and get them working together. And it really seems like that's what the mayor of Detroit has been doing. So there's your third plug. So <laughs> we've got handlebars, which is amazing <laughs> and apparently great for a bachelorette party. So that's good. We've got the roasting plant, which has delicious coffee and this very cool system where they like suck the beans up through these tubes and then distribute them to the machines. And then the mayor of Detroit. So, uh, you know, he's I up for re-election. I got the streetlights turned back on. See, there you the first go. Thing I said to you is like, I mean, the last time I was there, mo- half the city didn't have streetlights at night. So I was like, just make sure you're staying in an area where there's streetlights. But isn't that like also that's a great example of cleaning the yard, right? Yeah, it is. Like, no, and he said he, they, he made sure the grass was cut too, which is a big deal. Like even, even like the city... Like, I know the way Columbus is, they have all these abandoned lots, and they, they have to pay to get, they make sure they're mowed, and then if you own, if there's an abandoned house that, like, somebody owns and they're not taken care of, they'll cut that grass, too, and then they fine you for it, um, because it's just a night, and it's even in, even in my, I mean, it, those houses, they let wait, I think they maybe cut it once a year, but they'll go in, and they'll clean it up, and then you'll see all these notices on the house, um, but it's, I I think that's a I mean I think that's a great way to start like make people give a shit about their community so they think twice before they just throw trash on the ground. Well, and that's emotional, right? It's how yeah. we feel about the city, right? And how we feel about our communities. Yeah. And I think that's what's so funny is so uh we talked about this a little bit last night. You were talking about your Acres of Diamonds story. Yeah. Um do you want to tell your Acres of Diamonds story? Yeah, it's not really my story. Earl Nightingale if I'll I'll link that too so i heard it from earl nightingale when i was like 22 and first started reading books um but basically this guy he it's it's like the diamond boom is happening so everyone wants to go mine for diamonds so he sells his he lives on a farm he's a farmer so he sells everything and and to go chase this diamond wealth and then he travels all over the world and eventually dies alone and he doesn't find any diamonds and then a year later this little girl who who was part of the family that bought the property is is playing in the stream and finds these shiny rocks and then the owner looks and then it turns out they just have acres of diamonds all over his farmland so the you know the moral of the story is you know don't don't run away chasing the your you don't need to leave necessarily to go find what you're actually looking for most of the time you can find what you're looking for within you know a five mile radius of where you are and then you said the other story about the water. Yeah, so Booker T. Washington has this great, great speech. I think it's from like the Atlanta something, 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 some exposition or some conference. And, um, you know, he gave this speech and it's about the ship and it's lost at sea. And finally it sights another ship, right? And these guys have been out there for ages. And so they send a message to this other ship and they just say, you know, we're dying of thirst over here. Please send water. And so the other ship flashes back a message that says, cast down your bucket where you are. And they're in the middle of the ocean. This is nuts. Like, you know, it's salt water. They can't drink salt water. 
So they send a message back to their ship, and they're like, we're dying of thirst. Please send us water. And so it goes back and forth, back and forth, four or five times, and eventually, out of desperation, they cast down their bucket where they are, and they pull up clean, sparkling, fresh water, and it's because they're actually off the coast of Brazil, and the Amazon pumps out so much fresh water that even miles offshore, there's still fresh water. And I think that's the, that is really like these sorts of stories are so timeless because that's the nature of the human experience. Like the emotional experience of that the brain creates, the emotional reality makes us feel like we can't solve our problems. But the solution is always to cast down your bucket where you are. And Detroit is a great example of that because there are buildings, there are streets, there are people. There are all these sorts of institutions that you're talking about, like the University of Michigan, you know, Wayne State. There's lots of that. You know, you've got people like Dan Gilbert with money. You've got the Illiches. Did I pronounce that correctly this time? Nailed it that time. Okay, right. I am learning. I can learn, unlearn, relearn. And, you know, and all this information is available on the Internet. And I think that's the silliness of so many of our problems is, is that we're hoping that there, we're waiting for Superman. Like so we're hoping somebody's going to save us. And really it's like, we have to save ourselves. Like humanity's problems have to be solved by all of humanity working together. Yeah, man, I agree. I even think for me, like I, my first season, you know, urban farming at last year, I was doing it part time and I lost sight of like why I was actually doing it. Like I was doing it because I knew I would get laid off. And I was like, I need something to fall back on. And so I thought I was going to, my buddy has like three acres and I thought I was going to, it wasn't working because I didn't have enough land or something like that. And then I just decided I'm just going to buckle down and then things just kind of opened up. Like I had the opportunity to buy my house and then I'm trading this guy housing for labor. And it's like, so the way I worked it was, man, I, I couldn't have done that. And I couldn't be up here just enjoying my life still had I decided, well, I need to quit my job and go move out and get some small farmer loan and just get myself in all kinds of debt and trouble. And I think it's That's uh, what college is for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, it's you just, you just go where you are. I mean, you, um, I mean like what I was saying earlier about my neighborhood, like there's this guy, he's this, uh, he's a Mexican immigrant. He owns a paint company and he bought this corner house that was a dump and then he redid it. He put this privacy fence up and then there was a house that went up for auction down the street and then he bought that and decided he liked that house better than his house and redid all that house, put this privacy fence up, and then he rents it out, his other house out to one of his friends. So it's like, man, now like the neighborhood's getting better and better one house at a time, or I'm there, I've redone my whole backyard. And it's, I mean, like I said, there's crack whores that walk past, like little, literally crack whores that walk past my house on a daily basis. But I'm there. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're trying to I'm doing, you know, small scale agriculture right there for profit and people don't mess with me. Like people like, I mean, just the weirdest people will stop up for that are just from the neighborhood and they want to talk to me about what I'm doing. And I just sit there and I talk to them. And I think it's like, you know, giving a shit about your neighborhood or being there to actually communicate with your neighbors goes a long way. Like it's, it's not, you know, you have to take ownership of where you are and, and you have to enjoy it. And and you can't pretend like, I mean, I, I could pretend like everything's hunky-dory around me, but it's not. I mean, there's definitely prostitution all the time that I see. There's still going to be that here, but, you know, it's just a character of the city. And you, you do what you can to try to support those people. 
But I think, you know, you, you just also keep doing what you're doing. Like if you're doing something positive, keep doing it and then you'll get noticed and you'll inspire other people. And then it's, then it's just a, it's a, um, some kind of effect. Virtuous cycle. Yeah, it's a virtuous cycle, but then it's just, it's something that's an effect. Like you're going to inspire people, then they're going to take action. They're going to inspire other people. And then before you know it, like the neighborhoods will start to take themselves over. I feel like a lot of cities go through this. Obviously, Brooklyn went through it. Yeah. My parents, born and raised in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Um, you know, Williamsburg and Brooklyn completely got turned around. Now it's the trendiest place to live. Everyone wants to live there. So many mom and pop places came in. I know a ton of friends. As soon as you graduated high school on Long Island, you moved out to Brooklyn or Hoboken. Um, and even in San Diego, you think beaches, you think it's beautiful East village in downtown San Diego. You didn't want to be there after, you know, it got dark and they completely cleaned it up. Once they revitalized Petco park, they completely cleaned up the streets, but it's things like that, that people don't really know that go on in these other cities, um, you know, because they have that stigma of being this great city. So it's definitely something that it definitely takes a team and it takes a lot of work and it takes time. Well, and I think it also ca- takes comparing notes. And I mean, this is where the idea sex come, it comes in is, is that so many people are trying to do these things on their own and that, you know, they're like trying to invent the playbook from scratch. And, you know, you don't have to look around very hard to be like, oh, man, like this is a problem that has existed many, many times before throughout history. Not just right now. There were lots of places that it happened, but it's happened. It's been a problem throughout history where, you know, I mean, Detroit is a great example, right, for a long time, we depended on the automotive industry, and that was the backbone of our economy. And then there were shifts and there were changes, and suddenly we couldn't rely on that anymore. Or Motown, right? We relied on that. And then we had to reinvent ourselves. And that's what humans do. Humans reinvent themselves. But you can't reinvent yourself when you're you know, feeling helpless. You're in that state of learned helplessness, and you're waiting for someone else to solve our problems. And so, again, it just comes down to hey, there are acres of diamonds. Cast down your bucket where you are. And if you look around, you know, there's I mean, I think that's also what I think is so funny as well is, is that, you know, uh, so much of like what, what what makes people happy. Right. It's about an experience of life. And it's that experience of purpose. It's about the experience of finding meaning and trying to solve something that you care about. And there's such a misapplication of that where like there's a tiny group of people who get huge amounts of awe in our society. Like, you know, celebrities like Brian Callen Um, and, you know, uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and like all of these sorts of things. Media darlings. The media darlings. And it's like, you know, that's great. Like, there's nothing wrong with the media darlings. That's not going to be most business owners. No. Like a tech business owner, that's so unrealistic. Like, you're just going to... I mean, that's why there's such a problem with rent rates going through the roof in the Bay Area right now because of Silicon Valley. Everybody wants to move there and be the next startup billionaire. And the same thing with with people like Hunter who moved to L.A. to be famous movie stars. (sighs) Jesus. Yeah, and that's the point. I just, you know, I am part of the problem is what I'm saying. He he moved to L.A. to be a movie star and start hanging out with Scientologists and acting classes. And then, uh, and then he, he realized he was wrong in his ways, and he decided he was going to be a tutor and write a book about teaching kids. Yeah. <laughs> and then now I'm here in Detroit. Now you're here in Detroit. And, and I just really want to start it. A- and you're, you're a Harvard man. You're the token Harvard man to give a speech at a young, youth 
Economics. What is it again, Derek? Detroit it's, Economic Club, September nineteenth at the Detroit Economic Club. They have their token Harvard man there. Yeah, who can talk? Token white guy too. Token so. white. Oh, is he going to be the only white guy? <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. Oh, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> token white guy from Harvard who's going to be wearing a polo shirt that's not even a real. It's a Cambodian polo no, no, shirt. He's going to be wearing the ski suit. I thought. Are you going to? Oh wear yeah, the ski or suit? I could be wearing the ski suit. I mean, you're talking about the irony is right. The speech is like the subtitle of the speech is about you know a sustainable culture of excellence, and that ski suit is for me at Ski Dubai, ski which Dubai. is literally the most unsustainable thing on the planet. It's <laughs> an indoor that's... ski place in the middle of the Middle East. That's what we were talking about, though. Like most of the stuff there, because it's just like this crazy theme park in UAE. I, mean, I haven't been yet. But it's just like everything there is just so crazy and most Americans have no idea it even exists. Yeah, and I mean, it's a great example. So a lot of, uh, you know, what Katie O'Brien and I talked about when we were doing the straight-A conspiracy was the differences between resources and resourcefulness. Because obviously a lot of the kids that we were tutoring were literally the wealthiest children on the planet. And so they literally have every imaginable resource. And yet they still weren't doing well in school. So, you know, you would hear all these silly narratives about like, every kid needs an iPad, every kid needs a this. And we're like, we're tutoring kids who have four iPads. They have every imaginable textbook. They literally have someone to cook and clean after them so they have nothing else to worry about. They get chauffeured to school and yet they're still not doing well in school. So like, if you've maxed out the resources argument, then what's left? Skills. And then, well, it starts to become about resourcefulness, right? Like, how are you using the resources that you have? And the UAE is another great example of that in the Middle East in general. You could not have more resources and you could not have less resourcefulness. Yeah, I think it, that's the biggest thing, I think, is focusing on skills. And that's something I, I, I just harp on a ton is without skills, you have nothing to fall back on. Like you could say, I remember, I mean, we all grew up with this, like get a degree so you have something to fall back on. And it's like, you just fall over with that. I always think of like, you know, in those like, uh, I always think about the mandatory uh, team training in corporate America where the person lets catch each other. And I feel like a college degree is always the thing where you just fall and nobody catches you. And that's like what I always see in my head. But when you have real skills... Like it's not, you're not going to have that issue. Like if you develop a skill set or if, I mean, just people skills or networking skills, like we're not taught real skills or how to study. Like I was telling you yesterday, like I never knew how to study. Mm -hmm. I could pay attention enough in class throughout school and get good enough grades so nobody would bother me. And then I could get an honors diploma if I did well on tests and I knew how to take tests. So it was like, uh, to me, it's, it, we're, we're not set up to learn real skills. And I think that's what, that's what you're talking about, resourcefulness. I think it doesn't matter how many iPads you give a kid or who chauffeurs them to school or who cooks their meals. Um, if they don't know how to have a conversation with a normal human being, they're never going to get anywhere in life. But it is also partly, it's a, it is that mindfulness of resourcefulness, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't know if I've ever told the story on the podcast of uh, the boy who harnessed the wind, William Kamkwamba. I've I don't never, think I, I have. Is, I always worry, like, because I have a set of favorite anecdotes, and like after 200 podcasts, you're you've like used up most of your gems. So every time you're like, "Have I already told this story? Am I going to bore people with well, it?" People don't hear what you say; they hear what you keep saying, Hunter. What? That's amazing. You've I actually love that? that. No, I've never heard That's that. That's like a marketing thing. Oh Jesus! Like you don't people don't hear what you say; they hear what you keep saying. Yeah. It takes like 
takes the average person like five times a year or something. I mean, that's why when you learn somebody's name, yeah, you want to try to use it in a sentence right away. Yeah. Drew and, Sample. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> so that's how you don't forget it, right? Like, because we just met everybody here and I made sure I knew everybody's name. So then I'm going to have this awkward thing. So I'm not trying to brag about myself, but it's it. You have to you have to know how to program yourself. It goes back to all that uh, knowing how to learn. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I still think it goes back to I mean, so you know, resourcefulness, right? Yeah, you still have to have the opportunity to understand how to be resourceful, right? I mean, it goes back to the education. If you don't have the opportunity to access it, you're screwed. So even these rich kids that you're working with, maybe they're so sheltered they don't have the opportunity to understand what resourcefulness is. I mean, Well, they've never had to. I mean, yeah. resourcefulness is something you have to develop, and essentially they grow up in bubble wrap. And yeah. if you grow up in, I mean, you know, we were talking about University of Michigan and uh, everything that's going on there or any of these schools, you know, and these kids grow up in bubble wrap. And uh, I actually was really glad that last night you brought up uh, Nassim Nicholas's Taleb's anti-fragile which i have not read Damn, uh, son. but i did get the thesis um i got the cliff notes um and you know he makes the point that if you take a watch right and you put it under stress the watch breaks but the difference is that biological systems you put them under stress and they get stronger so you know it's because you work out and you push yourself to the edge of your limits that you actually get in better shape. Yeah. And humans are anti-fragile. The more you challenge them, the tougher they they need to get. And the the that's the sort of the insanity of safe spaces is is that you think that you know by protecting people you're helping them become stronger, but you've misunderstood how people actually get stronger, which is being pushed to the edge of their limits because humans are anti-fragile. Um, but so William Kamkwamba. Yeah. So there's this book called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. It's a great book, excellent read. But it all centers around this kid in Malawi. And uh, Malawi is incredibly poor. It's in sub-Saharan Africa. They only have 2% electricity. And that electricity is unreliable because it mostly comes from this hydroelectric dam. And then because of bad agricultural practices, there's a lot of soil erosion. And then the soil erosion silts up the dam and the dam won't work, so it often breaks down. So there's a famine in Malawi, right? Like this is just like problem on problem is heaped on this kid. And because of this famine, his family can't afford the few, a couple hundred dollars a year to send him to school. So he tries to keep up and is copying his friend's notes, is trying to learn, is trying to do whatever he can to keep up, but it becomes unsustainable. So there's a village nearby where the Americans have paid for a library. So every day he starts walking to this library, and he's just reading any book he can because he figures at least he's getting some kind of education, and maybe if there's a better harvest next year, he'll be able to afford to go back to school. So in that library, he finds a book on electricity generation. And the one thing that there's a lot of in Malawi is wind. And so he sees this book and realizes that you can turn wind into electricity. And he's like, that's fucking amazing. How do I do that? And so he goes to the junkyard, and from pieces of scrap in the junkyard, he builds an electricity-generating wind turbine. He takes a bicycle dynamo, right, for a bicycle headlamp, and he uses that as his generator. He's so poor he can't afford a screwdriver, so he takes a bicycle spoke, heats it up, and beats the end down to become a flathead screwdriver. And, you know, he just talks about the first time his mother experienced electricity in their house, like having lights, and that he'd made that possible. 
And uh, because, you know, Africa, people have lots and lots of cell phones um, because they sort of leapfrogged over landlines. But of course, because they don't have electricity, people need to pay to charge them. So he starts selling the electricity from his electricity generating wind turbine so people can charge their cell phones. So news of this spreads to Lalongwe, the capital, and all of these expats start coming out to see what this kid has done in this nowhere village in Malawi. And they're like, oh, my God, the whole world needs to know about this. So they fly him up to TEDx Kilimanjaro. He gives a speech, doesn't really speak English. So it's mostly photos. And then him in like halting one word, one sentence you know, at a time, he explains what he did. The world goes nuts. They rush in. They send all this money to him. They send him to the Nelson Mandela Leadership Academy. And he ended up going to Dartmouth. But the point is, is that to me... Yeah, you know, I joke that he's the MacGyver of Malawi, right? And to me, it's like he robs all of us of excuses. Yeah. If if that guy can there with literally nothing but a book and trash can, you know, generate his own electricity, then what excuse do the rest of us have? Yeah. Feel pretty lazy right now. <laughs> well, and that's the point. And I think, you know, I think that's the thing is feeling lazy is sort of the stepping stone to feeling inspired, right? Because now it's like, man, you know, what can I do? And I think the 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 interesting thing is is that, you know, it's we've we've been taught that, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs has that great quote where he says, The greatest day of your life is when you realize the world was built by people no smarter than you. And I think that that's so much of what's needed for humanity to really start solving its problems is to really get past that idea that there are all these genius myths that we've been sold on, this idea of magical people, and just realize the world was built by people no smarter than you and that there's no reason why a bunch of random people who met on the Internet and then met up at the United Way office here in downtown Detroit can, like, remake the world. Yeah, Mike Michalowicz talks about that a lot. With He's written a few good books like i use his um accountings like his his cash flow system pretty much profit first but he wrote a a book called uh toilet paper entrepreneur and that's that's the whole thing like he talks about media darling entrepreneurs and everybody thinks that's what you're gonna be and that's just not the case like you have to be a bootstrapper and his whole idea is with the toilet paper entrepreneur is we always use we so the toilet paper is is the analogy like if if we have a full roll of toilet paper, we take way bigger handfuls versus if there's a little bit left, we make that roll really stretch. And I think that's it's the same thing with the kid in Mumbai is he didn't I mean, he didn't have any toilet paper. So he had to really make it stretch and get creative with how he was gonna wipe his own ass. Like not to sound like too too crude, but I mean essentially that's it. Be crude, Drew. Yeah. I mean, you're a farmer, dude. Like, yeah. you know, you live in the dirt. You know, I live in the dirt in the hood. Yeah, so you know what it's about. Weird people on bikes drive by that sound like Sling Blade, and they but, say, nice greenhouse. I'm like, thanks, man. And then but, they keep driving down the alley. Also, I just want to note that like you shouldn't hear somebody say the phrase streetwalker after you just watched a lot of Walking Dead because it just creates totally I mean, in a image. way, they're zombies. Yeah. Because they're zombies out on crack and they're just looking to get their next fix. So, I mean, they're streetwalkers. That was our, uh, another plug, though, for the uh, prostitution ring in Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, it's weird. There's a there's a part in the city 
Um, so when we first when we first started farming, we were doing a community garden, and that's like uh, that one worked out well. And then I tried to do one, and it was literally just trash in this abandoned lot um, down the street from my house. And I spent I spent about six hours cleaning trash, and then the guy that ran the program uh, started sending me harassing emails because he didn't feel like I'd made enough progress. And then I sent him a bunch of photos that I took and I said, well, look, man, you gave me zero resources. I'm paying you to do this. I spent six hours cleaning up trash that you refused to send me any resources to help me clean up this trash. So I really don't feel like you have any right to tell me that what kind of progress I've made when you're not putting any effort here. And then it just became this really negative relationship. And then they continue, the neighbors continue to throw trash on my community garden I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to, I need to focus on my own property first before I can try to get this community involved. So if I'm not doing it to my property, why is anybody else going to be inspired? But with, with the other community garden, we, it was in the south, south end of Columbus, that one worked really well. My friend Joel spearheaded it, and we had, that was when we first started sm- selling at farmer's markets was from there. And at the, there's like a rallies up the street from there, and it's this, this, guy pimps out his sister and it's this like these and actually we could drive by there tomorrow if you want to see it go down or later today sounds amazing and uh <laughs> they're there all the time i mean it's, it's amazing how you know when borat pimps out his sister it's funny and then when you hear about it happening in reality it's just tragic yeah. and sad i mean yeah it's this you know i like to call them hillbilly white people on the south side of columbus and it's uh it, we could hear him like uh this I guess her name's Sam. That was my buddy's. That's my buddy's wife's name. And so he heard somebody screaming Sam, and he's like, "What's going on?" Like he was worried something was going on with his wife. He discovered that was the name of the dude's sister. And uh, it's, I mean, it was kind of a weird thing for us. I mean, we would see there was a Kroger there too, and you, you could see this guy take take his kids up and they'd go forage. Which actually, I think foraging in dumpsters at grocery stores is actually a good idea because they throw away a lot of good food. I don't know if you guys have seen that stuff. Dumpster diving. Yeah, I mean, you can dumpster dive quite a good stuff of food. My buddy Little John does it. Um, but, um, yeah, I think... Your buddies with Little John? Yeah, this guy, he's in. Uh, he's out of... Uh, what is it? Uh, he's out of Wisconsin. I forget. It's some Shabokin or some some weird Wisconsin... So it's not the rapper, then, is what you're saying? No, okay. no, 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 no. He's He looks like Little John Robin from Hood's Robin friend. Hood. Yeah, oh, there you go. It is yeah. that one. Yeah, it's like Little John from Robin Hood. Uh, but... I mean, you know, when you see people pick out a trash to feed their families and, you know, everything like that, I think it, it, it's a, it's a real experience and it's, and I don't do it for the, I think living in the city, I like doing it because I don't like suburbs. Like I've never felt comfortable in that type of culture. Like I, I'd, I'd prefer to be left alone and there's a lot of looky loos in the suburbs, but that's usually why that does look nice. But I think I'd rather be in a more organic you know, community that just gives a shit about itself. I don't want a homeowners association to tell me how big my grass is or that you're not allowed to butcher a deer in your yard or something like that. So, um, I don't know. I, I think, I think the, the whole point of what I was saying is, uh, I don't really know. So I'm going to pass the mic here because I I started talking about hookers and hookers and butchering deer. You can't have any chickens. Yeah. So Columbus, they're making it a, a thing where they want permits and then they have want some guy to tell you how to build a chicken house that's yeah, never that's worked right. with chickens. That's the and same it's, way it is in London. Any kind of farm animals like that, it has to be 
outside of the city? Or? Yeah, in Franklin County, where I live, you have to have five acres, and there's no limitations. But there's, I mean, there there's a lot of BS that I'm gonna have to, I would like to subversively bring attention to. Like we have this bullshit environmental court, and some judge that's really proud of it. It's they're not environmental at all. It's just a way to extort citizens that are trying to help out their communities. Or oh, okay. I, th- I think, I think. Um, I mean, for me, obviously, my passion is food, and I think we're very far removed from our relationship with our food. And I think, uh, I mean, I work with, there's a, there's a nonprofit out of West Jefferson. I want to get him on my show. He was at the farmer's market I was at yesterday, and they bus in kids. They bring kids out from the inner cities from, like, the west side where we are and where we were in the hilltop, and they didn't believe him that sh- like eggs came from chickens. And he had to like record a chicken actually laying an egg for them to actually believe it, because there's just not there's just such a disconnect between people and where their food comes from. So I think when you go back to basics, I think like urban urban homesteading, I think a lot of times people want to moralize it or, or use it as some form of social justice. And I, I I've been there, and I and I actually relate to it. But I think just just providing people a relationship with their food or a relationship with animals or seeing how these animals actually live i mean if anybody's ever seen a chicken interact it's not they're not kind animals especially if you give them a snake or a mouse it is is it is a brutal it, nature is brutal man they it's, are little dinosaurs as rogan always says yeah i, uh, yeah. I actually grew up my uh grand i didn't grow up in detroit i grew up about an hour north of detroit in a small town called richmond yeah. and my grandparents had a farm and then we were out there quite a bit but i mean they're your point <laughs> yeah they're uh they're not little front little uh, chickens you see on uh disney cartoons no i mean i'm about to butcher a pig really soon we have hogtoberfest every year and it's like a heavy thing actually we're butchering we're gonna be butchering meat birds next sunday like a week from today and you know i don't mind butchering chickens but i mean no taking the life of an animal to for food i mean i think it's it's a burden you should bear I think it's something that should bother you. It's something that you should have a heavy heart about, because just going to a grocery store, you have no connection to that. There's a, there's this, there's this, uh, there's a removal between you and where your food comes from. So people want to moralize and become feel like they're better because it's soy or like this is soy grown. It's like, do you know how many animals die because of large scale agriculture? You know how many deers are eaten up by turbines because. The doe, the, the the baby deer don't leave if their mom's not around, so they just hide in this little area. So even when this machine's coming, they don't move, and then it just gets eaten up by the tur- like the corn turbine and everything else like that. So there, there's always blood on your hands, like especially when it comes to food. So you should just accept it and kind of embrace it. Is my well, point. and also with history, I yeah. think you know. So I've, I've there's a buddy of mine in L.A. and he always says people always want to separate the blood and the treasure. And, you know, there's all the treasure of modernity, right? You know, I mean, the food is a great example, whether you talk about pizza. Well, pizza, you're eating, uh, you know, oppression because it came out of the conquest of the Aztecs, right? Because the tomatoes originally came from there, you know, the taco, right? There's a lot of human misery behind that. You know, there's human misery baked into a lot of human progress. And, you know, this is the old dilemma in science. If you got data by human experimentation, but you're then going to save a bunch of lives, do you use that data? 
And it's just that now, in the same way that we're so removed from the origin of our food and the death of an animal, many of us are just sort of so historically ignorant that we don't understand that all the treasure we enjoy comes from blood. And part of what is now happening with the Internet is we're starting to understand that. So what happened with Foxconn, where Foxconn is where uh, all the iPhones and a lot of the electronics are made, but there was a lot of suicides there. And it's because in order to you know get those sort of low prices, get that level of production, the workers are sleeping on site and they're waking them up in the middle of the night and humans don't do well with sleep deprivation. $1,000 for an iPhone is not exactly cheap price. <laughs> Well, it's not exactly a cheap price, but compared to like if you had Western labor standards, yeah. nope, it would true. be a lot more expensive. Um, also, you're talking about the iPhone X, dude, which is not what I am buying. We're, we're still not. We're still not even talking about the the kids in the Congo that are mining coltan with their hands and all that shit. I mean, there's. I mean, it's just every part of the world goes through an industrial revolution. It's like, but even though, so now, like something David Wong. I posted this way back when, when his Cracked podcast, he's talking about, like, we're living in the best time ever across the world. Like, world, like global poverty is reduced. Uh, more people are eating. I mean, look, there's still poor people. There's still people starving to death, and I'm, it's awful. But it, it's getting better. I mean, it's progress. I mean, just like the whole idea of making America great again. It's so funny, but that's like this this perspective, but it's it's just not a reality. Like, if any of us went back to 2003 where we couldn't get on our cell phones or we couldn't look up certain things or just there's there's little things that technology has helped us with, we'd all go crazy after about a week or maybe a month. Like we would be cool. Oh, this is nice, nice break. But then we'd be like, oh, this is so frustrating. Like I can't text you. I can't, I can't look up times to movies from my hand right now. And it's like we have so many conveniences now that we're so used to. And, it's, and a lot of it's from innovation. And without that innovation, we, we would, if we knew better, we would never want to go back to anything else. I do agree, but I also think it is a double-edged sword because a lot of that instant gratification in millennials coming in. I know I work in marketing and advertising, so mm -hmm. it's super demanding, ton of hours. 80-hour work week is a good week. And, you know, hiring in new college grads, they're asking how many hours am I working? They just, and going back to your point about being resourceful and what are you doing and it kind of just, I feel like that instant gratification is taking away from that resourcefulness because you can just get on your phone and find it in two seconds. You're not really utilizing resources that maybe we had to, pulling out an encyclopedia or whatever the case may be. But I just think that it's just kind of alarming, you know, that when I'm seeing all these millennials coming in and I really have to dig deep to find someone who's super driven and who's super passionate and has that excitement in the interview to be like, okay, they will get the job done. And they're going to be online at 11 p.m. working or 2 a.m. working. And I'm going to make sure that, you know, they're going to be promoted because they're working really hard, not because they are just getting the job because they graduated from a good school or whatever the Like case they went to be. Harvard or something like that. Some shithole like that. I didn't that. mean to look at you. <laughs> no, 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 but I, I think this is a really... I drop it all the time. Um, but no, but I mean, this is, this is the... Uh, so we were we were talking about this last night, and this is you know a conversation that I had with Thaddeus Russell. Um, and honestly, I mean, you know, Thaddeus and I are pretty clear, and I think we're pretty clear, and I think mm -hmm. Brett, Brett I, Vinat too, Brett Vinat is pretty clear that there is a revolution coming, and that revolution comes down to a simple thing: there is a mismatch between the piece of paper that costs two hundred fifty thousand dollars 
and the person and what really matters. And what really matters, what you're talking about, is core values. It's culture, right? It's essentially what is your attitude? Do you have an attitude of gratitude? Are you resourceful? You know, are you taking charge of your shit? Can you shit? troubleshoot? Can you troubleshoot? Do you know how to manage your own emotions? Uh, you know, are you ganging up on the problem or are you ganging up on other people? Are you engaged in petty politics and gossip? And the clearer and clearer that mismatch becomes, at a certain point, people will realize that the piece of paper doesn't mean anything and that it's massively overvalued and it's a magical talisman and uh, there will come a moment when Thaddeus Russell and a bunch of uh, other guys Harvard like me, grads. yep, we all burn our diplomas on social media. And it'll be as powerful a moment as burning our draft cards or burning our bras. Because what you're saying is, is that this actually doesn't tell you anything. And I don't think it creates a better society because it comes out of this industrial age and this, you know, Brett Vinat and I both have found this quote and it's 100% spot on about, um, you know, Woodrow Wilson, I think when he was governor of New Jersey, he said, uh, what we want is, and he's speaking to the National Association of High School Teachers, he said, what we want is an educational system that produces two kinds of people. One, a small group of people who have the full benefits of a liberal arts education, who are suited to, you know, critical thought and managerial work. And then another, by necessity, much larger class of people that are so turned off to thinking that they are only suited for the dullest, most routine kinds of manual labor. And there is no better place to talk about that than Detroit. Or, I mean, I remember being in Toledo, and it was something I was joking with you. We talked before, is, uh, I forget who, it was either my dad or a guy was, no, it was my buddy who worked at the Sunoco. Have you been to Toledo? There's this big Sunoco oil refinery on the east side. Yes. And they'd be in meetings, and guys would be, I mean, this is like, and this is like the group think that has to change. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. You pay me from the neck down. And that's like a real thing. Yeah. Like, that's a thing. Like, you know, they wanted, my grandpa always says they wanted weak minds and strong backs. And like, you can't rebuild a city with a weak mind and a strong and back. it's not going to last that long once we become a society of those jobs that you don't need that much skill to do and become kind of efficient robotic robots replacing all of them. The, the most you can work, the most you can make at Jeep now in Toledo, which Toledo, I think Detroit's in a way better position than Toledo, which is interesting because the economies are usually connected. Like yeah. Toledo is baby Detroit, and like when you're in Toledo, but it's a totally Detroit's so much cooler. Um, it is like it's it's just way cooler. There's way but more. But Toledo history. has that awesome mosque. Toledo, no, that's Perrysburg. Oh, that's Perrysburg. Yeah, so Toledo is holding on to this Jeep plant. They're basically not charging Jeep or Chrysler any taxes to be there. And the most money you can make there now is $15 an hour as a new hire. They may have changed it. Maybe you can make yeah, 18 That's minimum wage now in Canada. Yeah, yeah. But it's it, so, like, my dad just retired from Jeep. And he's like, yeah, they don't get pensions. They don't get the same benefits. The most they can make is 15 an hour. And most, like, and then, like, within the plant, there's, there's like, these contracted companies like KUKA and all these other companies. And they pay their employees even less to do the same work. So it's, like, that that the idea as we all know of working somewhere for 30 years and retiring isn't a real thing anymore but that's something that like hit the rust belt hard because that's what we grew up believing and that's what we we had this idea i mean my grandpa retired from the railroad was a union president my other grandpa was a union president on the on the pipeline 
my dad was in a union. You know what I mean? Like it's all my uncles are in unions. And like, so the, the idea of the union town and it, it's like, you know, you need to change the way you think. Like those jobs aren't there. Unions can't really give you that pay that you used to have and still pay for itself. I mean, so that idea and it's, and it's what Derek was, was talking about earlier is like, you know, all the old people were leaving, but that's a, to me, that's a good thing, right? Cause it's like in, in an economy, you got to look at it like a forest fire. Like you can't keep preventing the fire. Like you can't keep preventing that fire from spreading. Like sometimes you just got to let that motherfucker burn and then the new growth in the forest is going to come. So right now we're seeing the new growth in the forest and like we're sitting in part of that new growth, right? Yeah, the only thing I would add to that um, somewhat kind of an opposition is that I think there is still opportunity. Yes, truck drivers are going to go away. Yes, all these things are going to go away. Yeah. That question is how do we help people, you know, you know, clean their own room? Yeah. There's a huge shortage of electrical workers, construction workers in, oh, in yeah. Detroit and everywhere across the country. And you know what that opportunity is? That's Skilled. an opportunity for everybody in these neighborhoods to, Skilled to help trades. figure it out. Yes. But we were also told yeah. go to college so you don't have to do that type of job. But then those are the only types of jobs. Like, those are the types of jobs yep. we need. Like Mike Rowe talks about it all the time. I 100% agree with yep. you. Yeah, no, and uh, we do a part of the Detroit Economic Club. We started a what we call a career writing academy where we've – 250 uh, kids last year, and we're looking for the kind of the middle of the road kids to kind of help them explore careers, talk about the opportunities and everything else. But when I tell these kids, because my dad just retired from the local electrical union, and he made a really, really good living, over six figures towards the end, and I mean, just fantastic. And I tell them this, they're like, wait, what? I'm like, you can go to college and spend $200,000, or you could be making 60000 You know, when you graduate from college, you're probably going to make forty grand. Yeah. Or you can, you know, get go, an apprenticeship and get make an forty apprenticeship. grand. They pay you the whole time, and by the time you would have been 22 and graduated, you're making 50, 60 grand, and, you know, on your way. Yeah. They, I, they have no idea. It goes back to just the opportunity. To, you know, yeah, but that's, that's skilled labor. That's way different than working in a factory. I 100% agree with you. Yeah. Like, and I meant what I was talking about was factory work. Yeah. So I should have clarified that better. Sorry but also, that. in terms of the trade, so this is something that John Aguilar and I have talked about, and specifically with Mike Rowe, is, is that, you know, part of it is that people need a path, right? They need a path to that dignity. They, A, need to know it exists, which a lot of people don't know they exist. They, B, need to overcome the stupid societal stigma that drew is talking about against that kind of work like if you're getting paid who the hell cares right you're making yeah. people's houses work you know that's who part the of that's part of white culture man well I mean, it's it, not not just white culture weird culture yeah it's it like says pro- fucking proper white, proper white culture <laughs> is is that sorry Derek. Yeah, no, another kind of crazy Derek, part about your microphone that. too buddy sorry about that you're um fine. is that we just built a new arena just up the street from here that's where the pistons and the red wings will play uh, and a part of that was that you need to have X amount of, uh, you know, Detroit residents working there. That's great. Um, but the issue was is that they we did not have enough trained individuals to do this. So I think there is a pathway to do it, but we're still missing part of, uh, you know, a connection there. And so, I mean, you know, and this is, by the way, I, funnily enough, this is also like an international problem. So in Libya it was virtually impossible to find a decent plumber or electrician. And my mother had this plumber who came in and explained to her that, you know, oh, the problem with her pipes was gin. So literally he was saying genies were in the pipes and that was the problem and that he couldn't really solve it. (laughs) My mother was like, wait a minute, genies? Like genies is the problem? It's not like a hairball or something? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's gin. 
Jin is the problem. And then she's like, could you take another look? Could you just like take another look? Turns out it was something else. But uh, there was, again, so there's the social stigma against those types of jobs. And then on top of it, there were no shortage of Egyptians who would do those jobs. But then Gaddafi had created all these barriers to the Egyptians immigrating. So the 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 consequence of that is is that you know when people in the middle east often don't have a good path to dignity guess where they end up Here. terrorism oh. or terrorism so oh, you know so i think that's you know providing like the job eclipse is going to be tough everywhere and there's going to be required a lot of slow thinking a lot of reflection a lot of innovation but if we can clear up that path to the trades worldwide um, you know, that's a, that's a, that would be a huge, huge help for a lot of, you know, global issues. And I think part of that is, you know, we can have these conversations, we can do all of that. But the other thing that we've also talked about is like, okay, let's start breaking down those skills for people and start creating tools where, you know, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're a guy like John Aguilar, you know, uh, we'd like to create some sort of system where you can find apprentices locally in your area where you can start to break down and teach some of these skills so that, you know, okay, you're a master plumber, you're a master electrician, you're a contractor. Like, can we, you know, support you in making videos to teach people those basic skills and start to build out their toolkit? What are the things that we can do as the mixed mental arts community to start to make these things accessible? And I know, Derek, that you guys have started already to make a repertoire and a repository of those sorts of tools and resources. So maybe you could share that with the group. Yeah, so we're, we're trying to. So, I mean, right now we've interacted with 250 students. Uh, we hope to grow that. But what we really want to do is use the Internet to have all these things we talk about accessible to any kind of uh, school counselor in not only the state, but I mean, maybe in a you know, larger, larger area. Because um, at the end of the day, there's only so many of us, you know, part of the Young Leader Program for the Troy Economic Club that can go into these schools and they're just, you know, a numbers issue. But the information's there. Um, I mean, the thing that I personally think outside of that would be great if we start, you know, having a trade class in high schools. Again. I mean, let's give, why do we take that out? I mean, if we can't yeah. find enough trained people, let's add that back in. So. Yeah, I mean it yeah, it it all went to college prep and then there yep. was one vocational school and then you got the stigma of being a loser kid if you went to the I mean that's how it was when I grew up. And like my it, and I think, you know, we'll offer that stuff in schools. I mean, I remember if you offer parenting classes, why not offer you know, how to how to change a tire or uh, automotive well, but that's, or stuff like that, that. That also, I mean, this gets down to economics, right? And economics has this narrow obsession with revenue and dollars and all of that. And even back in the 60s, you know, Robert Kennedy talked about the problems of GDP, right? If you're, my dad always says, you are what you measure. And so if your whole measure of the success of a society becomes GDP, then you just are like, man, let's drive that number up. It's no different than what happens at you know Verizon or Time Warner, where it's like, that's the number you're trying to drive up, yeah. and everything becomes about trying to drive that number up, and it, you so don't understand that. Happens, yeah, exactly. incentives to drive that number, but people learn to maximize those incentives and not actually, it's, and it becomes like a, the housing bubble. I mean, it, it turns into a bubble and things pop and then people are like, oh, it was fraudulent. This whole thing was fraudulent. No way. And that's, but that's like a, that's, 
the well, way incentives work most of the time. And we're we're really reaching the end of that sort of GDP college is everything bubble where, you know, we've myopically focused on this. Guess what? People don't know how to fix their own houses. They don't know how to clean their own rooms. They don't know how to take care of their own health. They don't know how to raise children. They don't know how to create a culture. They don't know how to do so many basic things. And that's because we were given this incredibly narrow-minded education that was like, we're going to teach you the things that are going to help you get SAT scores to get you into college. And then, you know, you're essentially going to find yourself in this position where you don't actually know how to take care of your own life. And you just hope that you're making so much money that you can hire maids and plumbers and electricians to fix that. Oh, but guess what? Because we did that system, there are no plumbers, there are no electricians. So, you know, it's just, it's an insane system. And, you know, Robert Kennedy's point was, is that, you know, we should be focused on gross national happiness. That's, yeah, uh, I mean, to that point, I love going to U of M. I love the school and I love a lot of the people there, but I always say there's a lot of the dumbest smart people I know there. So it's, I was known as, I was known as one of the more handy people. I, my dad's an electrician. I work construction through high school and college for a little bit. So I have some of those skills and people would always call me. Well, one of my good friends, buddy's, uh, girlfriend called him cause they had an issue at their house after his winter break. I go over there, their basement's flooded and the house is freezing. And, uh, it's all pipe froze and broke, right? Yeah. And water's just going in everywhere. And she's like, is this my fault? And I go, yes. <laughs> yes, water freezes. She's like, can you fix it? I'm like, I can shut off the water, but you have to call a plumber. But it's just amazing to me that they think, oh, we'll turn down the heat to save a little bit of money and then not have the common sense to realize, oh, yeah, the water will freeze. But it's not, but it's, it's not common sense. I think that's, you know, I mean, Ben Franklin has some great quote yeah. about common sense where, you know, I mean, the, the point is everybody takes it for granted that the things that they know are sure. common sense. But, you know, I mean, it, it also comes down to this terrible, narrow-minded definition of smart and intelligence where it's like you think that if you can quote XYZ philosopher or you know XYZ from some book that you're intelligent. But intelligence is environmental, right? So, you know, you take me and you put me in the environment of high school, you know, math. I am a smart motherfucker, right? You put me in the environment of, say, past multivariable calculus, I'm a dumb motherfucker, right? You put me in the environment of, like, having to fix a flooded basement, I am the dumbest motherfucker on the planet. I'm like, it's just like, ah, Derek, please come save me. I'm drowning. What did I do? It goes back to the disconnect with food. I mean, it's the same thing with handiwork around the house. Like, there's just a disconnect there. Like, I'm disconnected from it. My friends call me. I mean, luckily, I have, like, a good, I kind of, um, Henry Ford it. I have a guy that can help me out with anything, like, everything. So I've never really took the time to learn a lot of stuff, but I know what's wrong, and I know why and how it needs fixed. I just might not know how to do it. But it's the same thing. People just, they think that water comes to their house, and it's magic. Or they, you know what I mean? Like, they, they have no clue why when they flip the light switch that the light bulb comes on and we're really like because i pay my electric bill speaking of henry ford have you guys checked out the henry ford museum in dearborn no we Super just got cool. food You'd, they actually have um a lot of great artifacts there he um Turns out when you're super rich, you can just buy a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so they have the chair where um, Abraham Lincoln was actually executed, um, assassinated. Um, Bloodstains still on the chair. Really impactful stuff. They have the limo that 
Kennedy was assassinated in as well. The bus that Rosa Parks sat on. So a lot of cool. That's, little plug for the Henry Ford. That's super yeah. cool. So there's another free ad. <laughs> Jesus, no wonder, wonder this podcast makes so money. We advertise <laughs> shit for free. The, the Toledo Art Museum was founded by the Libbies, and he bought all that art on the black market. Yeah. And it's this great art museum. It's because back in the day, like they were just like, well, we like art. So they would just buy it all, and they created a museum. Like He bought Edgar Allan Poe's house and transported it out. Like Henry Ford did? It's the second, I believe. I don't think it was the original Henry Ford, but I mean, it, it is really cool. Actually, yeah. if you have time to swing by it, but it's a half day adventure. Half day adventure. That's so cool. Well, speaking of which, if we do want to see the city a bit, it's 214. We've been going for an hour and 26 minutes. You want to keep this bitch going or we want to wrap it up and see some of the city? Well, I think, you know, I mean, clearly the sample hour is over an hour. I mean, mixed mental arts. I mean, we're trying to get a, to Rogan length. Yeah, but, I mean, you know. I do. Yeah, I mean, I do like two-hour episodes. I'm okay with it. I just know we got no, no, no. We've got, got shit Columbus. to see, and yeah. I think you know we've plugged. I mean, we don't want to advertise all of Detroit because then people will already know all the great things mm. that are here, and they won't bother to come. Lots of good Coney Dog restaurants too. <laughs> You're the American or Lafayette guy out there, and the, my Detroit fans will will uh, will know about that. So. So, yeah, so I think, you know, this is uh, part of the evolving, I mean, I can't speak for what's going on in the sample hour, but uh, this is part of the evolving mixed mental arts playbook. And the point is, is that, you know, I think this is a great example. You know, here we are in Detroit. We've got people from Canada, we've got people from Detroit, we've got people from Long Island slash San Diego, and then we've got a hillbilly from Ohio. <laughs> Rust Belt hillbilly. Yeah. And, right. you know, there's lots and lots of great people all over the world. And the point is, is that I, you know, more and more, it's just clear to me that, you know, the answer to all of our problems is just connecting the dots. All the dots are out there. They just need to be connected up. And that as we do that, and you Americans know, are the best at connecting dots. So that's what, that's your that. narrative that you're telling me. I think humans are great at connecting dots. Yeah. I, I think say Canadians are pretty good at it too. Though. Yeah, Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> this Canadian's getting unpolite right now. Uh, you're only good at it because you were born in Texas. Oh, that's <laughs> that's where you got the dot connecting gene. <laughs> um, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, thank you guys all so much for coming up uh, to the Detroit Mixed Mental Arts me- Meetup. Yeah, Derek, thanks for making this all happen, man. No worries. And I would be uh, remiss if I didn't say Jeremiah Moselle, who's also a member that's quite active on the boards, was supposed to come, but he's actually a uh, linesman. Uh, and so he works for you know, electrical companies, and he's down in Florida helping get the power turned back on. So uh, shout out to Jeremiah. That's great. Woot, woot. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. In the year 1843, a man was born who, during his lifetime, was to have a profound effect on millions of people. His name was Russell Herman Conwell. He became a lawyer, then a newspaper editor, and finally a clergyman. It was during his church career that an incident occurred which was to change his life and the lives of countless others. One day, a group of boys came to Dr. Conwell at his church and asked him if he would be willing to instruct them in college courses. They wanted a college education, but lacked the money to pay for it. He told them he'd do all he could, and as the boys left, a thought, an idea began to form in Dr. Conwell's mind. He asked himself, why couldn't there be a fine college for poor but deserving young men? Well, here was a great idea, and he went to work on it at once. Almost single-handedly, Dr. Conwell raised seven million dollars, with which he founded one of the world's leading universities. He raised the money by giving more than 6,000 lectures all over the country, and in each one of them, 
he told the story called Acres of Diamonds. This was a true story, which had affected him very deeply, just as it affected his audiences. The story was the account of an African farmer who heard tales about other settlers who had made millions by discovering diamond mines. These tales so excited the farmer that he could hardly wait to sell his farm and search for diamonds himself. So he sold his farm and spent the rest of his life wandering the vast African continent, searching unsuccessfully for the gleaming gems which brought such high prices on the markets of the world. Finally, in a fit of despondency, broke and desperate as I remember the story, he threw himself into a river and drowned. Meanwhile, the man who had bought his farm one day found a large and unusual stone in a stream which cut through the property. The stone turned out to be a great diamond of enormous value, and he then discovered that the farm was covered with them. It was to become one of the world's richest diamond mines. The first farmer had owned literally acres of diamonds, but had sold them for practically nothing in order to look for them elsewhere. If he had only taken the time to study and prepare himself to learn what diamonds looked like in their rough state and had first thoroughly explored the land he owned, he would have found the millions he sought right on his own property. The thing about this story that so profoundly affected Dr. Conwell and subsequently millions of others was the idea that each of us is at this moment standing in the middle of his own acres of diamonds. If we will only have the wisdom and patience to intelligently and effectively explore the work in which we're now engaged, we'll usually find that it contains the riches we seek, whether they be financial or intangible, or both. Before we go running off to what we think are greener pastures, let's make sure that our own is not just as green, or perhaps even greener. You see, while we're looking at other pastures, other people are looking at ours. Someone has said, if the other pasture looks greener, maybe it's because it's getting better care. There's nothing more pitiful to my mind than the person who wastes his life running from one thing to another, forever looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and never staying with one thing long enough to find it. No matter what your goal may be, perhaps the road to it can be found in the very thing in which you're now engaged. It wasn't until he was completely paralyzed and forced to reach into the resources of his mind that a courageous farmer got the idea of producing exceptionally good meat products on his farm. From this idea, one of the country's largest meatpacking companies was born. His farm contained acres of diamonds, too. He had just never seen them before. An insurance man got the idea of going back to all the people in his files and really working with them, serving them the way he felt they should be served. That year, he wrote an additional $700,000 of insurance and joined the Million Dollar Roundtable. He found he no longer had to approach cold prospects by working with the people he'd already sold and on their referrals. He found acres of diamonds right in his filing cabinet. A man from a small town amassed a fortune starting with a single service station. In the beginning, when things were tough, he would ask himself each morning, What can I do to increase my service to my customers? He's retired now, and his son heads the large, complex enterprise that all started with a small service station and a daily question that will virtually guarantee success in any undertaking. What can I do to increase my service to my customers? Answer that question in constantly new and better ways, and sales and profits will take care of themselves. Do you know what the so-called average man would have done in the case I just mentioned? He would have been worried about how bad business was, because in the beginning my friend had a hard time just feeding his family. When one day a man drove into the station in a big shiny car, the so-called average man, seeing what he presumed to be a wealthy customer, would have said to himself, I ought to be in his business instead of mine. 
You see, the average man believes some businesses are better than others. Instead of realizing the truth that there are no bad businesses, there are just those people who don't know enough to see the opportunities in the work they're in. No matter what our work happens to be, it's our business. We're the manager. If there seems to be no future or opportunity in it, it isn't always because it's not there, but perhaps only because we can't see it. A farmer once poked a tiny pumpkin into an empty jug. The pumpkin grew until it completely filled the jug and could grow no more. When the farmer broke the glass jug, he had a pumpkin exactly the size and shape of the jug. If we're not careful, each of us can do a similar thing. We can mistakenly poke ourselves into jugs that limit our growth. But it is we who do the poking, not the job, nor the company, nor the territory, nor the economy, nor the times. We do it. We should avoid such self-restriction and realize there's virtually no limit to our growth and development on the land upon which we now find ourselves, with our roots deep in the soil of a working philosophy of life such as the one offered by this program, and our minds and bodies in a climate of freedom. People who become outstanding at their work are those who see their work as an opportunity for growth and development and who prepare themselves for the opportunities which surround them every day. It was J.B. Matthews who wrote, Unless a man has trained himself for his chance... The chance will only make him ridiculous. A great occasion is worth to a man exactly what his preparation enables him to make of it. Preparation is the key. This means becoming so good, so competent at what we're now doing, we'll actually force the opportunities we seek to come our way. It takes imagination, creative imagination, to know that diamonds don't look like diamonds in their rough state, nor does a pile of iron ore look like iron or steel. Great opportunities lurk constantly in every aspect of the work in which we now find ourselves. In order to begin prospecting your acres of diamonds, start to develop a faculty called intelligent objectivity, the ability to stand off and look at your job as a stranger might, a stranger who considers your pasture greener than his own. To do this, start at the beginning. Within the framework of what industry or profession does your job fall? Do you know all you can know about your industry? How did it begin? Why did it begin? Who started it and when? What is your industry's annual dollar volume? How fast has it grown during the past 20 years? What's its projected growth during the next 10 years? Did you know that many industries will double in size during the next 8 years? This takes only about a 10% gain per year. In short, start now to become a student of your industry. You'll be amazed at the results. In five years or less, you can become a national expert in your field, and it's the experts who write their own tickets in life. Just think of this for a moment. If you can see no limit to the growth of your industry, doesn't it make sense to realize that there's no limit as to how far you can progress within its framework? Surveys indicate that the great majority of people seem to look at their jobs as being as far as they can go as the end of the line. Why? They need to realize how really desperately an expanding and dynamic industry needs and seeks the uncommon person who is prepared to share in its growth, how richly it will reward this person of vision and action. On the other hand, those who are not preparing and growing are not just standing still. In relation to their industry, they're going backwards. So ask yourself, do I know as much about my job and my industry as a good doctor or lawyer knows about his job, his profession? You should, you know. This is the attitude of the person who wants to become a professional at what he does for a living. It's far more fun, many times more rewarding and interesting, and the real pro can ride out occasional storms in the economic seas in a safe boat built of research and preparation. In order to become a professional in a world of amateurs, we need to study three important subjects. One, our company and the industry in which it operates. Two, our job and perhaps the next step upward in our career. And three, we need to study people.
since successfully serving and getting along with people will determine our success or failure. These are three subjects on which you can gradually build a fine home library. Your bookstore clerk will help you find the right books if you will tell him what you want to know. Frequently, all you need in order to make an enormous improvement is simply a reminder of things you've known but have forgotten. Perhaps this study and research on your job, your industry, and ways of increasing your service to others sounds like a big job. It is, but it's fascinating. And in the long run, it pays tremendous dividends, builds complete security, and it can be accomplished in an hour a day, devoted to reading and making permanent notes. Studying one book or one article at a time, an hour each day, will lead to your becoming an expert at your particular job and industry in five years or less. The hours add up one at a time like the great stones of a pyramid, building a strong and permanent foundation which raises you a layer at a time toward the goal you seek. Each morning, as you get ready for work, ask yourself this question. How can I increase my service today? Then during the hour a day you set aside for study and research, make notes and think about your industry, about your job and company, and about people. You'll gradually begin to get better and better ideas for improving your service. Remember these words. No man can become rich without enriching others. Anyone who adds to prosperity must prosper in turn. Think of ways and means by which you can increase your contribution to your company, your industry, and those whom you serve. You'll begin to notice a wonderful change in your world. For, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. This applies just as much to the wife and the children as it does to the breadwinner. The minute you adopt this attitude, you've joined the top 5% of the people of the world. You've virtually removed all competition. You're creating rather than competing. You're affecting life rather than just being affected by it. You are becoming a creator and a giver to life instead of just a receiver. By taking this attitude toward your work, your company, and industry, you're automatically taking care of two vital parts of successful living. First, you'll find yourself becoming more interested and enthusiastic about your work and its future, and both interest and enthusiasm are contagious. And second, you're building financial security, which will last a lifetime. So keep this thought in mind as often as you can on and off the job. Somewhere in your present work, there lurks an opportunity which will bring you everything you could possibly want for yourself and your family. It'll not be labeled opportunity. It will be hidden in common everyday garments, just as was the hairpin with which a man fashioned the first paper clip, or the dirty drinking glass which triggered the paper cup industry. Now, in closing, here are 12 points to remember. One, if we'll develop the wisdom and patience to intelligently and effectively explore the work in which we're now engaged we will very likely find it contains the riches, tangible and intangible, we seek. Two, before we go running off into what we think are greener pastures, let's realize our own pasture is probably unlimited. Three, there are no bad jobs. It's the way in which we go about our work that makes it good or bad. Four, let's not poke ourselves into jugs beyond which we cannot grow. Let's avoid self-limitation. Five, only preparation can ensure our taking advantage of the opportunities which will present themselves in the future. Opportunities which are around us now. Let's begin to prepare now. Six, put your imagination to work on the many ways and means of improving what you're now doing. Seven, learn all you can about your job, your company, and your industry. Eight, since there's no limit to the growth of your industry, it must follow there's similarly no limit to your growth potential within that industry. Nine, our dynamic and growing economy needs and will well reward the uncommon person who prepares for a place in its growth. Ten, Begin to build your library of reference material pertaining to your company, industry, job, and on how to better serve and get along with people. Eleven, set aside an hour a day for this study and research. And twelve, remember the story of the Acres of Diamonds.